One of the things that that we you find in this town is that the incentives in in DC are to do the wrong thing, mm-hmm. right? If you just basically shut up, do, you know, stop stop causing trouble, st- stop talking about doing all this conservative stuff, just just do what the swamp wants you to do, you will have a successful career. We need to turn that upside down, right? We need to basically say if you fight for the good for for fight the good fight, fight for conservative causes, um you can be successful and you can get uh, uh, good jobs and you can be somebody who actually puts points on the board and has um, has a rewarding uh, career. And that's really the essence of what CPI uh, really is focused on, is creating that infrastructure that allows people and encourages people, creating a culture where doing the right thing is rewarded. Howdy, everyone, and welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Saurabh Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment. And this week, it is just me. We are getting to the end of the season. Just a couple episodes left, a couple very good ones, mind you. Um, But boy, what a year it's been. Uh, Just before we had our guest in today, he asked how many of these episodes we've done. And the number I said, 135, still sort of baffles me. as always, be sure to go to AmericanMoment.org. There you can find everything we have cooking as an organization. The Fellowship for American Statecraft application is going to close very soon. This is for the Spring Fellowship. It starts in, I believe, like mid-February and goes to um, the beginning of the summer. This is $3,000 a month for three months to get your first job on Capitol Hill. We'll place you in a great office. If you are aligned with the values we talk about on this podcast, you want to put your hat in the ring, this is the way to do it. It's the best program of its kind in Washington. We highly encourage you guys to check it out. Today, we had on someone uh, who's way, way, way overdue. Um, Ed Corrigan is probably more responsible than all but maybe 10 other people on this planet for why American Moment exists. He's the president and CEO of the Conservative Partnership Institute and has over 25 years of leadership experience on Capitol Hill and in the conservative movement. In 2009, GQ magazine named him uh, to its list of the 50 most powerful people in D.C. He was tapped by the Trump transition team to lead the personnel selection process for all domestic policy departments, and he put almost every good person that was in that administration at the beginning in there. He works with the Conservative Action Project and serves on the board of the Leadership Institute, and before that, he served in senior roles in the United States Senate. From 2003 to 2012, he was the executive director of the Senate Steering Committee, the Caucus of Conservative Senators under two chairmen, Senator DeMint and Senator Jeff Sessions, and he served again at Steering as executive director under Chairman Mike Lee during the spring of 2017. Uh, He got his start as an intern on Capitol Hill at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee under Senator Jesse Helms and was in Senator Bob Smith's office as well. Uh, In 2011, he received the Wyrick Award for Capitol Hill Staffer of the Year and also uh, went over to the Heritage Foundation as their vice president for policy promotion when Senator DeMint was there. Uh, He was born in the town of Lakenheath in Suffolk, England, where his father was stationed while he was in the Army. He grew up in Longmeadow, Massachusetts. He holds a Bachelor of Arts degree from the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and his wife uh, and him have two children, Allie and Danielle, and they live on Capitol Hill. Uh, Ed is one of the great titans of this movement. He is generous in spirit, brilliant in mind, um, and very, very good at what he does. Um, He helped make our organization exist, and we had a fantastic conversation about how this town actually works how does congress work how did the transition work what does cpi do and all the little details about how the new right might go about taking on more influence he signed the national conservatism statement of principles before uh, well before i took over the role as executive director and so he he he's one of us and i think you guys will really enjoy hearing from him we'll go now to ed corrigan ed thanks for coming on the podcast Thanks for having me. We always like to hear about how our guests got to where they are today. You have a pretty interesting story, all things considered. Um, uh, you're sort of an example of, you know, the, the staffer made good in Washington. T- tell us the tale. H- how did you end up uh, running this organization and, and doing everything you do today? So, yeah, thank you. Um, basically, uh, so I, I started, I worked on the Hill. I started in 91. I was a, I started as an intern in the uh, Foreign Relations Committee. Why did you, you show up here? I just I got involved in campus politics. I went to UMass, a very woke uh, school, um, and was really sort of offended by a lot of the stuff the campus administration was doing. And it was like any you know D one school; it's very uh, filled with activists and, and leftists. And so, 
got involved in, in the political student government, uh, was the editor of the conservative newspaper on campus and really sort of uh, I fell in love with that par part of it. And so at the end of school, I decided to move to D.C. Um, and took on an unpaid internship in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee for Senator Jesse Helms. I uh, did that for about a month or two. Um, and then finally landed a paying job, which was nice, uh, for Senator Bob Smith of New Hampshire. Um, so, so tell me about Senator Holmes, because it's it's one of those names where, like, if you know, you know. And yeah. so uh, he was a, a very interesting figure at the time. Explain just the political environment at the time and why he was so unique compared to everyone else. Yeah. Senator Helms um, was from North Carolina, uh, which is, you know, even back then was was very much a, a purple state. Um, and he always had tough reelections, but he was one of those guys that just always had his foot on the gas, always was fighting for what he believed in, always would at the tip of the spear, not afraid to take on issues, which is very unusual in the Senate, um, was very adept at the parliamentary procedures, uh, kind of knew how to use the rules, uh, had a, knew how to message, knew how to basically frame issues in a way that could be politically advantageous. Um, and so I was really attracted to to his style, um, and Senator Smith was similar, um, and so that I just really enjoyed uh, uh, that as as my first entree. He was a hero of mine, when, even when I was in college, and so to be able to work in his office was was a real honor. And he ended up having sort of an interesting path, even you know, out of Congress. Tell me a little bit about how that ended up happening. Yeah, well, as he was always very interested in foreign relations, um, and that was kind of his his. Uh, I mean, he he basically was was very active on domestic policy. He was probably what he was more famous for. But then he um, uh, uh, he became chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, and really sort of uh, was kind of the. The, the, the leading voice uh, in American foreign policy. And at the time, uh, you know, because of his uh, because of the power of his voice, the committee was really a very powerful committee. Um, and he wielded that kind of power very effectively, not just in the committee, but he was very good at getting um, he was very active at trying to install people into positions uh, in the administration. When we had a Republican president, he was very active in trying to promote um, personnel that he that he really thought could help move uh, move the ball. And that, that's that's unusual for senators. Usually they want to hoard their staff, whereas he would say, OK, this person is is a is a real leader uh, and I need to I need them to be, you know, an ambassador or, or a, you know, undersecretary or something. And so he was very active in that kind of stuff. Gotcha. So you worked for Senator Helms up until the point he left Congress, I guess, and then then what next? Well, I worked for Senator Helms for a little bit, and then I worked for Senator Bob Smith mm -hmm. um, of New Hampshire, um, and I did that for about ten years. And he was um, very very active as well. He was from New Hampshire, again, very purple state, really kind of a blue state at the time, um, but he was able to to win and. He was kind of a he was really kind of MAGA before MAGA, um, you know, was was uh, very much uh, America first on trade, uh, you know, uh, very uh, um, dubious of adventurous foreign policy, things like that. Um, and so that was I enjoyed my time uh, with him, was very activist on, on social issues and things like that. So where, where did that come from for him? Was it like. Yeah, I, I, he doesn't strike me as like a very intellectual guy. It just seemed like that's that's what he thought mattered. He just yeah, he was. I mean, he wasn't. He was he was a, a, a school teacher, a realtor, um, and just somebody who just had very strong core beliefs. And you know, ultimately, it it it, it wasn't um, the best fit for the state. It's a tough state. It's northeastern. It's you know surrounded by Vermont, Massachusetts, and Maine. Um, and so it was, you know, he ended up having a tough, uh, reelection and was defeated in his primary by, uh, a rhino. And so that, that was unfortunate, but at, after he, he lost, I went and, um, uh, became the director of the Senate steering committee for Senator Jeff Sessions, who had just taken over. Um, and then I, I would work for the steering committee for about 10 years. Tell me about the story of the steering committee. Why was it created? Um, what's the role that it's played over the years, different seasons it's had? Yeah, so the Senate Steering Committee was created um, at the same time as in, in 1974. Uh, Paul Weirich was a real kind of uh, organizational entrepreneur. He was a congressional staffer at the time. Um, and he uh, came up with the idea to have uh, a group of senators that would organize and meet weekly to promote conservative ideas. This was unusual. Usually, the parties were the were the the font of of you know ideological uh, cohesion. But he decided that the Republican Party was too weak, too rhino. We had a, we had a rhino. Uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, Gerald Ford was the president. You had 
a lot of uh, uh, folks who are running the Senate leadership were not conservative. And so he decided that the conservatives had to have a way to organize. Um, and then the Republican study was founded at the uh, Republican study committee was found around the same time, the precursor to the House Freedom Caucus. Um, they also found Paul uh, Weirich also started the Heritage Foundation, a lot of other ALEC, a lot of other institutions at the time. So um, throughout its course, it's it's had um, different uh, iterations. Basically, it, it kind of started to grow in power as, as basically people started to say, OK, this is actually something that I need to be a part of. Um, and so when I was there, our lunches and I think to this day still pretty much all the Republican uh, senators attended them every Wednesday. They have a lunch. This is one thing about the Senate that most people it's 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 one of the most important things uh, in the Senate that gets very underreported is the importance of lunches, right? On Tuesday, there's a Republican policy committee lunch that all the Republicans go to. Democrats have a similar thing. On Wednesday, the Senate steering committee lunch. And then on Thursday, Thursday there's like a Thursday group lunch that basically all the senators go to. So that's where yeah, a lot apparently of apparently senators are like almost dying in these meetings as yeah. of this week. Like They're, Tony Ernst needed get, the Heimlich maneuver. They can get very, uh, yeah, that was, uh, uh, Rand Paul uh, uh, rescued her and, yeah. and saved her life. So that was, that was quite, uh, um, you know, uh, not something you, you're, you're looking for, but the meetings do get pretty um, uh, uh, spirited uh, sometimes. Um, and that was when uh, that was kind of one of the fun parts about about the job that I really hadn't anticipated. But when I first walked into my first steering committee lunch, I was the only sta staffer in the room. Um, you know, the the secretary of the majority, uh, Dave Schiappa at the time would come in periodically, but it was really I'm kind of like the Uber driver just sitting there kind of like just making sure everything's, you know, that everything's going OK. Um, but they let it fly. And it was it was kind of interesting to be there. Um, you know, there's no leaks. It's pretty uh, a pretty tight uh, uh, group at the at the meeting, um, but they really have good conversations. And so. I think it's important. I think you want to have uh, the ability for people to to hash out ideas, and that's where they do it at these lunches. So after Senator Sessions, who'd you end up? Spending? So then Sessions did it for four years and had about all he could take. It's a, it's a it's a pretty grueling job, the Senate Steering Committee, because you one of the functions of the committee is you're putting holds on bills, right? And a lot of times they're bills that your Republican colleagues or your even your Democrat colleagues are are really passionate about, mm -hmm. but these bills violate conservative principles, so mm -hmm. you would put holds on them. So so explain what a hold is and maybe more broadly talk a little bit about the singular power that one senator has right. that people don't understand. So uh, Trent Lott once uh, said, tells this story about how he asked uh, he, he, when he first came into the Senate, he was the House uh, uh, whip and then basically got elected to the Senate. And uh, he went to the parliamentarian and said, uh, can you tell me uh, you know, about all the rules? And he said the parliamentarian uh, turned to him and said, there's really only two rules in the Senate. There's exhaustion and unanimous consent. <laughs> and the second only happens after the first one. Um, and so basically. And exhaustion is not a term of art here. It's, it, it's people getting tired. physical exhaustion. <laughs> a lot of times it's three o'clock in the morning and finally people are like, OK. Um, but he um, uh, is. But the but the idea is that the Senate rules are so cumbersome and there's so much the Senate needs to do that at the end of the day, you need 100 senators to agree before anything can really happen. Now, there's there are bills that they move on regular order and there's nominees that they'll put through on using cloture rule, which is basically the, the way that you can kind of end debate when there's a filibuster, um, filibuster being uh, uh, some senators talking and just not allowing you to move forward. So um, the opposite of unanimous consent is what's called the hold. And basically, that means one senator has expressed their uh, 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 opposition to moving forward on something. And if you don't have that one senator, you don't have unanimous consent. And so that was a big part of what the Senate Steering Committee, we reviewed every bill that came across the what they, we call the hotline, which is essentially um, bills that are going to be going through uh, without without a debate or a vote. And so oftentimes we would we would slow them down and say, OK, well, we don't like this particular provision in the bill. And we'd have negotiations with the committees and say, OK, well, if you take this out, we'll let it go. And they'd, they'd be upset, but they'd be like, OK, well, this is what we'll do. And so that was a big part of the the the, the job. Um, and so, uh, you know, uh, Sessions, he was he leaned into it. He did a great job with it. But ultimately, he's like, OK, I'm going to hand this off to somebody else. Senator uh, Jim DeMint had just been uh, uh, he was a pretty, pretty new senator, but decided that he would take it on. And so 
Um, I went to the senator's uh, staff and said, listen, I'm happy to turn in my resignation if you guys you know, want to uh, bring some. He had a really good staff. And so there could have been anybody in his office that could have done it. But they said, no, we'd like you to stay on. So I got to um, continue with him uh, and, and, and basically enjoyed that uh, for six years under Senator DeMint. So it's a very interesting situation because um, Senator DeMint really became the leader of the conservative movement inside the Senate um, during his time there and then continued being the leader of the conservative movement after. T- tell me that story. Uh, you followed him um, and, you know, run me through how it ended up with the creation of CPI. Yeah. So we um, so Senator DeMint was was uh, it's funny. He was he was kind of a. Um, you know, he, he wasn't like a, a real sort of bomb thrower senator his first couple of years. He was just kind of, you know, figuring out and, and you know, was was very, very interested in policy, uh, messaging, things like that. Once he took over the steering committee, he's like, OK, uh, I guess we're doing this. And he really um, he leaned in to the job in a way that I had not seen any uh, steering committee chairman done in, in my uh, during my time in the Senate. Uh, it was the rise of the Tea Party around that time, and he um, really became like Senator Tea Party. Uh, basically, loved loved a lot of the organizational aspects of it. Was was totally comfortable with all the you know putting holds on bills, you know running the lunches. Um, but he also really uh, kind of took a uh, became passionate about the outside game too. Right, the the the, the, the one of the roles of the Senate Steering Committee. And the chairman and the staff is to continue to build coalitions with out with nonprofits, with activist groups, with uh, with grassroots organizations um, to to essentially have that, you know, close uh, collaboration that can help you to to, to, you know, advance your legislative goals. He loved that. Um, And so around, um, uh, I guess it was uh, 2013, um, uh, Ed Fulner, uh, the uh, president of the Heritage Foundation, had announced his uh, retirement. Um, and so Senator DeMitt uh, put his uh, hat in the ring for um, to be the chairman of the Heritage Foundation, uh, president of the Heritage Foundation. And so um, they selected him to do that. And so I felt like the Heritage Foundation is a large organization, I think requires, um, you know, a, a, a pretty uh, good, you know, senior leadership team. And so um, a bunch of us that were in his office, um, you know, I could have stayed on the Hill and done some, another job, but I felt like it would be good to go and help him uh, with that. And so we, we all kind of went over myself, Wesley Denton and, and others in his office went over to help him run, um, the organization. And how did that go? Well, uh, I, we, I really enjoyed it. I mean, it was, it, it's a, it's a fun place. Uh, it, it's, it, you have so much resources, um, uh, and, and, but it's, but it's a little, it's a little bit, I mean, it's like a, it's like a city, right? You got 300 staff, you you're, you have a massive budget. Um, it's like you're running a government agency to some extent because it's so large. And so we, I think we did some really uh, awesome things. I think the Heritage Foundation um, was really, um, uh, Heritage Action had become very powerful during the Tea Party. And so we were able to continue that. Um, we were able to, to be very actively involved in the Trump transition, which we can uh, talk about that. But ultimately, you know, large organizations, you inherit an organization, you also inherit the board and the board had different ideas about what um, what heritage should be uh, from what we were uh, uh, doing with it. And so we were um, encouraged to uh, to use our talents elsewhere, which is which, you know, I, I, I love heritage and I feel like it's it's a wonderful organization. I think Kevin Roberts is doing a phenomenal job. Um, and so uh, but but when we left, um, you know, we, we decided, OK, well, what can we do to, to help, you know, advance the movement? And that's when we started uh, CPI. So I want to rewind a little bit. Tell me what it was like to be in Washington in 2015-16 when President Trump was first running because Senator DeMint, um, I think, was was one of the more pro-Trump figures in Washington. Um, and it feels like a long time ago. It's before I came here. Um, so I'd just love to hear some color on what it was like and the, the spasms the movement went through as he sort of became more and more prominent in the national limelight. Right. I think that there's a um, there's several aspects to it, right? Um, I think the one we we see the most and the one that people are uh, maybe the the uh, gets talked about the most is oh we don't like his style, we don't like his tweets, or you know a lot a lot of the D.C. sort of polite establishment doesn't 
really was was off put by the the sort of like the the, the colorful you know um, uh, style that he had the frankness that 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 he brought to the table which I think is what really communicates authenticity for a lot of his voters um, but for DC authenticity is not what we value here in this city we value essentially you know reading just sticking to the script reading the poll tested language that kind of thing that's what the swamp values so you had a little bit of that um but i think what was what was even more so um threatening to uh the regime was his heterodox opinions on things that had been unifying uh within the the uniparty system um on areas like uh international trade right i mean these were areas where you had essentially from uh, starting in 1992 when Ross Perot ran and was re- against NAFTA, but the other two uh, uh, presidential candidates were in favor of it, right? All all the way up until, you know, Pat Buchanan and others had run and, and taken positions that our trade negotiators should be negotiating for American interests and not global interests. Trump was really the first person to be elected on that platform. And I think that was... Uh, scary for a lot of people in Washington and still is, um, in addition to uh, his uh, being really kind of the first president in my lifetime who took a less adventurous uh, approach to foreign policy, you know, no wars during his presidency, you know, that kind of thing. And so um, that, again, is not what this town values. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that was probably the thing that was the most uh, 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 trying for a lot of folks in the party who were trying to figure out what was going on. To be fair to people, you know, the conservative movement and the uniparty are overlapping, but not but not that overlapping Venn diagrams. And so, you know, that everything you just said makes a lot of sense as far as the uniparty. But within the conservative movement, I mean, I think you know, well-intentioned people who thought they were fighting, who, you know, and 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 had been fighting, even they had a lot of issues with, with the president. I mean, what was it like to be in rooms where, you know, people who had exhibited courage, who had gone out on a limb in the past, but just were completely revolted by the direction that, that Trump wanted to take things? Like, what, what was that like? I mean, I've, I've, I've heard stories, I've read books about all of friendships that were broken, et cetera, et cetera. But, yeah. but curious what you make of that piece of it. Well, it, I think that 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 is going to naturally exist. One of the, th- I, you know, I, I worked for the center from New Hampshire for uh, for 10 years and, and actually lived there for a while. Basically, New Hampshire goes through this every four years, right? <laughs> More so Iowa, New Hampshire in particular, and to some extent, South Carolina, the political party basically gets into a death, uh, a, a fight to the death every four years. And then and then at the end of it, you have to sort of, OK, put the pieces back together. It's the nature of a, of a of a robust presidential primary that you're going to have people on either side, different candidates who basically believe that their vision is what needs to happen. But then at the end of the day, somebody wins. Right. And so I think that was really what ultimately was with some people struggled with after the, um, you know, uh, after the, 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 the election is Trump won. And so having said that, you know, there are a lot of people who might have preferred one of the other candidates um and really kind of struggle with okay but that my candidate didn't win and that's disappointing to me and that's fine but from our perspective from my perspective uh we did have to help him with the transition right and so once the convention happens at that point like we're not in a primary anymore and and i think some people really kind of still thought we were right i mean i, I you know a lot of the you know bill crystal and so forth a lot of the the never trumpers who basically still think we're in the uh, you know the 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 the, the, the 2016 primary, but but basically our view and the and the view of 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 Senator Demint and the Heritage leadership was we need to do everything we can to help him. He is our nominee, and if he wins, we need to be able to help him to staff up his transition and to and to basically be successful. And so that's what we did, and 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 it was a big part of 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 my life during that that period from you know, summer of 2016 through, you know, January 20th. So tell me what that was like. What, what was the phone call? What, what did it mean to work on the Trump transition? It had its own phases. Tell me the the play by play. Yeah. So the, the transition and a lot of there's a lot of talk now, but just trying to we, a lot of groups are involved in trying to prepare for the next transition, um, you know, and you have different phases that basically it goes through the first phase, the, the kind of pre-convention 
uh, transition really is secret. Like there's not, there's nothing really public going on. Um, and it's important that it be secret in that basically you don't want your campaign staff getting distracted and focused on, on a transition effort, right? That, that, that your, your focus needs to be on winning. But we had um, kind of just basically back channel conversations. I was at the Heritage Foundation. Rick Dearborn was working for the campaign and we were talking, OK, but how, having real conversations, putting real pen to paper on how we would uh, look at structuring um, what the post convention transition would look like. Um, you know, Rick was 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 essentially the person on the campaign that was been was essentially uh, uh, dispatched to 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 work on this this project. At um, at the point at which the uh, the Trump became the nominee, Rick was still working on the campaign. Uh, they they announced that the transition was going to be run by Chris Christie, who brought in his own people. I think that was a little bit of a it created a bit of a hiccup, right? Because Christie was not a Trump loyalist, didn't really understand his philosophy, was not loyal to his uh, agenda or his um, his allies nor were the people that were running the transition some were but 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 basically his senior team were essentially christie people and so that created a little bit of a of a, of a challenge but our our role um the movement um was to try and install as many people into there's a physical office when you have after the transition uh after i'm sorry after the convention happens there's going to be a physical office um, uh, in, in D.C. in a GSA building where all of your sort of pre-election transition people are working. They're doing things like personnel vetting. They're, do, they're preparing uh, memoranda. They're, they're, they're uh, you know, all the, the types of things you would you would be doing uh, to prepare for an administration, uh, a new administration. You're doing that kind of thing. And so at, that was being run by by Chris Christie. Um after on election day, after Trump won, all the people from the campaign are now released to be, be involved in the transition. So you basically have an influx of new people. These are these are really your kind of inner circle Trump loyalists who had been previously working to win the election are now working on the transition. So you're getting an infusion of of, of real talent to come in and, and, and start taking it to the next level. Um, and so. I hadn't really been working in the uh, the the, the uh, post convention transition office. I was still working out of Heritage. Like you're going to have people working on transition who are in different, you know, geographically in different places. Not everybody has to be in the physical office. Then, um, but the other thing that was interesting that happened in twenty uh, in after the the 2016 election was that the transition broke into two pieces. So you had. Um, the DC office continued. They got a little more space and and basically continued to have uh, people working there doing some of these these roles. But then a lot of the like the senior campaign leadership uh, was was uh, basically that the Trump campaign had been run out of Trump Tower. Uh, it was on the fourteenth floor of of Trump Tower. It's actually, I think, like the the fourth or fifth floor, but he, he, Trump and his, you know, real estate genius decided people like larger numbers when they're on the top <laughs> floor. So he basically skips like 10 floors, which is hilarious. Um, but yeah, so it, it was actually the, 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 the floor, the 14th floor of Trump tower had been the set of the apprentice. Um, that was where the boardroom was and all that other stuff. And so it was kind of a bizarre setup. It wasn't really your typical office setup. Um, but that was where, uh, we had it. So, the day after Thanksgiving, they called me and said, can you go there to to work out of this office to work on personnel for for domestic policy? And so um, basically lived there for about a month or so, a month and a half. Wow. What was that like? It was fun. It was basically like working on a campaign or doing something where, uh, you know, you're essentially you're just away from from your family, you're just kind of like doing a, um, you know, a, a, a full time job. I and mean, it was like, you know, basically we were there all day until late at night, you know, just working on this project. None of us get paid. We're just basically loving what we do. Um, but it was really uh, it was very ragtag. You're kind of building the plane while you fly it. Um, but basically we would pr we would pr prepare these like org charts and 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 recommendations for different cabinet uh positions and then you know uh, you know assistant secretary deputy secretary that kind of thing and then we would send them up to a um to an executive committee that haul all the senior leadership from, from the the trump uh, uh campaign family members and 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 so forth and then they would review all these memos and, and kind of make some play calls on who was going to take different jobs 
and so and we had a team in dc that would feed names to us and a lot of it was really um you know you you would put a lot of reliance on uh endorsements right so basically on on our sheets that we would present it would say okay this this uh recommendation has you know uh steve bannon dave bossy kellyanne conway and jared kushner you know and then this person has you know could be, you know, any recommender, Newt Gingrich and and uh, Rick Dearborn and different people like that. So you would basically send that up and then they would, they would, a lot of, I think a lot of emphasis in this process is going to be on endorsements. So for people who are trying to get uh, positions in the administration, um, the more you can essentially uh, get people to vouch for you, like, you know, you're, you're in this process that's super important, right? Because we can't know everybody. You know, you're you're in the you're in the personnel business. You uh, American Moment uh, feeds people um, into the congressional uh, staff all the time. The 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 Hill office doesn't know these people, but they say American Moment does, so therefore they trust that. And so I think we live in a world where, um, to some extent, it's not what you know; it's who you know, right? And so that's what what I found on the transition ended up being very important. T- tell me, like, is that process mostly a, a kind of getting to a yes process or, you know, were there endorsements that you would see and be like red flag off the off the desk? Some of it could have been that. Yeah. But but usually those kind of people, if it was somebody who was a red flag, they wouldn't make it. Right. On the, like we we essentially the the only people you would list on the sheet would have been people that were known uh, Trump captains, you know, people who were either. Uh, people who are strong supporters of him during the campaign, people who are uh, uh, his friends um, or people who were, were known ideological allies and that we would value their uh, that that basically the executive committee ultimately would value their endorsement. What, what's the biggest misconception people have about how that transition went? I feel like there's a lot of mythology and a lot of, you know, people talking out of their you know what about it. But what you were there. What, what, what do people not understand about how it was? I think that basically the the one thing that that for 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 me um the the real wake up call to like how how tricky this all is is that the handoff from each of these phases is very difficult right you think you're building this this system and everything's going going to happen and then it's all going to play out the way you want but um the most important handoff is on January 20th Right. When he's when he stands on the in front of the Capitol, puts his hand on the Bible. At that point, the whole transition office essentially evaporates and everybody goes in and into their their jobs uh, on, you know, in the in whatever department they're working at in the White House or in the uh, DHS or whatever. And now they're looking, trying to figure out how they get their desk and, they, and you know, they get their badge and, and they're doing all these things that are very pedestrian, sort of like, you know, they're not doing the stuff that you put in all these memos. And so. I think that's the piece of this that really needs to be to be uh, managed effectively, that you need to make sure that the people who are running different pieces of the transition are the people who are going to be actually executing that in the administration. Otherwise, the handoff um, won't work. One of the one of the pieces for me, you know, I was on, on the, the personnel side um, and it was. Uh, uh, but when when the uh, when Trump was sworn in. Um, he selected as his personnel uh, uh, person, a guy named John Stefano, who hadn't really been working on personnel at all. Like he wasn't on the team at all. And, you know, that basically um, so he's he's starting from square one. Right. I mean, I think he still presumably had some of the documents that we had been working on. And certainly the cabinet designees had that. But it was um, that was a little bit of a, of a challenge. Um, and so that, I think that's, those are, those are pieces that I think need to be, um, really, uh, uh, you got to pay attention to those pieces. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. What, um, you know, you, you were involved with this transition, but, um, you decided to come back to, uh, to CPI after that. What, what was the reasoning there? So, uh, yeah. So basically, um, we, uh, when we started CPI, our, our, our goal was, um, we want to really bring the movement together. We want to provide service for uh, for congressmen and senators and, and people in the administration who really want to do the right things. We want to bring the movement together. One of the things that that we you find in this town is that um, people, the, the incentives 
in in DC are to do the wrong thing, mm -hmm. right? If you just basically uh, shut up, you know, stop stop causing troubles, stop talking about doing all this conservative stuff, just just do what the swamp wants you to do, you will have a successful career. We need to turn that upside down, right? We need to basically say. If you fight for the good, for, for fight the good fight, fight for conservative causes, um, you can be successful and you can get uh, uh, good jobs and you can be somebody who actually puts points on the board and has um, has a rewarding uh, career. And that's really the essence of what CPI uh, really is focused on is creating that infrastructure that allows people and encourages people, creating a culture where doing the right thing is rewarded. Walk me through how you see the ideological, professional, financial incentives for specifically members of Congress. We'll start with them and then we'll go to staff. Uh, why, why is it that all the incentives are allied against them? So obviously the money is a big one, right? Um, you have uh, publicly traded companies and, and, and uh, influential donors, um, many of whom give to both sides, right? And they're not looking to, you know, uh, win ideological uh, victories, they're looking to buy access for their spe their special interests. That's a ton of the money in this town. Um, and so, and then, the, and then the second thing is basically you have a concentration of power in the four party leaders on Capitol Hill, the, 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 the Senate Republican and Democratic leader, and then the House Republican and Democratic leader. Um, that have super PACs and political infrastructure that all of it is put in, in furtherance of the uniparty, not in furtherance. Now, the Democrats use their money to elect liberals. The Republicans use our money to elect liberals. Right? <laughs> and so like, and, and that's not fair. Like, I mean, I, I think what we want, what, what I think conservative uh, and Republican donors expect is that when they give money to super PACs, it's not going to be weaponized against conservatives in, in Republican primaries. It's going to be used to win seats yeah. to create a conservative majority. And so I think that's uh, one of the incentives is money. The other incentive that we talked a little about before is um, the social, right? Why do people not fight? Well, part of it is that you have um, these are these all these congressmen and senators are social animals, right? And if you t stick your neck out, sometimes you get it chopped off, right? And all of a sudden you're going down and trying, and you're going down to vote and nobody's talking to you and everybody's mad at you. And you go to these lunches and everybody starts yelling at you and, and basically not sitting with you. It's really kind of, uh, uh, Rachel Bovard uh, says it's, it's uh, if she were to pick two movies um, to, to apply it to, it would basically be The Godfather and Mean Girls. Like that's, Mean Girls is essentially the best um, description of, of how Washington works. And I think that's one of the things that we pay a lot of attention to is the social aspect. And I think that that's been the secret sauce with the House Freedom Caucus is that it's one of the things that's the under understated um, and most uh, 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 important reason why they're so successful is that they meet constantly. They're constantly getting together, constantly supporting each other. You know, somebody sticks their neck out and does something and, and, and you know, leadership's all mad at them. They can come back to the Freedom Caucus meeting and say, hey, guys, guess what? I, you know, you're not going to believe what, what I, I just got, you know, yelled at or whatever. And everybody says, you know, that's great. You know, you, you're, you're, you're doing the right thing. I think having in, in any walk of life, right, in, in any part when you're, when you're in, in battle, to have a group of, of, of friends and allies that you can rely on is, is so important, especially in politics. Now let's talk about staff. What's, you, you were one. Um, what's your assessment of what the, those exact same incentives are for staffers? Well, why does someone come and be a staffer in DC? I assume it's not to, you know, be corrupted and, you know, walk right. with a bag of money. Most people are idealistic. They're not the villain of their own story. How do they end up becoming that? So it's, it's a, it's a very gradual evolution. Um, you know, that the, the staffer, you know, anybody pursues a career because they want to, they want to provide for their family, but also they pursue a career in politics because they want to make a difference. Right. And what I think a lot of times a staffer will, um, will sort of perceive is that, well, the way you can make a difference is by climbing the ladder. And the way you climb the ladder is to make different 
compromises, right? To basically, um, to you know, just sell a little bit of your soul here and there. Um, but ultimately, now you're a staff director of a committee, or you're some important position, then you can become a lobbyist. And so, I don't think you they they it happens that from the very outset, like you say, you're saying, okay, I want to be a you know a fat cat lobbyist and be making a bunch of money selling my soul to you know pharma or something like that. It's just it's just basically. Um, you you realize that ultimately, you in order to get through the system, in order to rise up and become a, a, a somebody who can make a difference, you you have to play the game, and so that's I think where we need incentives uh, in the system that say playing the game and and doing the right thing, and I think what we've saw play out on the House floor, where you had. Um, the Freedom Caucus exercising power and electing a speaker specifically because he had been uh, seen as somebody who was who was courageous, who was who was uh, uh, supported our uh, our ideas. First, it was Jim Jordan, and now it's Mike Johnson. Like this is new, right? This is basically a a, a game changer. Where in the past, all Republican elected positions always went to the least common denominator. It's always the least, I mean, you know, Mitch McConnell in the Senate is is somebody who doesn't ever exhibit any interest in in, in fighting for our ideas. Uh, you know, Kevin McCarthy struggled with with um with with that position. And so, but now I think you have a, a, an example of somebody who was specifically elected as Republican leader because people felt like he would be um represent our 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 base. How is that going so far? How's uh how's your grade speaker johnson's progress what are you looking out for in the months to come in terms of yeah. how we're going to assess him it's it's tricky because um he came in uh it's like uh you know when i was uh, was working in the senate office you would have the classic story of the um you know the uh, legislative correspondents are the ones that that answer mail and so you'd have a an lc that got fired and then the new lc comes in and and basically realizes that there's like a thousand unanswered letters sitting on his desk. And so now, okay, what, how am I going to succeed here? I got, I got to answer all these letters and this is not a, this is an impossible task this guy left me with. I think basically, um, uh, Mike Johnson essentially inherited a thousand, a thousand unanswered letters. And he basically try he's, he's trying to get to where he needs to be. I think he, the one thing that he brings to the table that I think gives him a certain degree of running room is that he's not perceived to be somebody who wants to undermine us, right? I think we believe that he wants, and this would have been the same for Jim Jordan, we believe that he wants to do the things uh, that we want to do. And so I think people are going to trust that he's trying to do, uh, that he's trying to get it and will get as much as he can. That's ultimately the job of a leader. That's the, the job of, in, a, in an adversarial two-party system, each each leader's party has to believe that they are going to negotiate for the best they can get. Mm -hmm. And if they don't get it, it's because they couldn't get it. Um, I don't think we really know yet. I think there's a lot of things that are, um, that people are still kind of like, okay, well, I'm waiting to see. And, and you, you get a lot of smoke and mirrors. There's a, um, we call it the glossary, uh, where, where leadership tries to basically give us these sort of Jedi mind tricks to pretend they're trying to fight for the things we want. Um, and, and then they, we don't get anything at the end of the day. And so it's always difficult to try and predict what their, what the outcome is that they're actually looking for. And so there's a number of moving pieces right now in the, in the, in the negotiations on things like, uh, Ukraine aid, uh, border security, spending levels, um, all of them are are kind of moving parts. Nobody knows really has any idea where anybody's what 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 posture each each is taking because it's all happening you know behind closed doors. Um, but I think conservatives are watching, and at the end of the day, um, you know, Speaker Johnson's going to be judged by the outcomes of these things. And it's not like we we expect him to win on everything, but um, we do expect him to 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 fight for the best he can get. I'm curious this this can seem like a tangent but you know part of the reason why the conservative movement became effective over the last 20 years or so is that conservative media both came into existence and became more conservative and so and if you look at the feed of your typical influencer um uh on the internet i think they have a pretty low tolerance for hearing 
a song and dance about why something that seems pretty weak is actually good. Are you worried at all that if Mike Johnson pulls it off and starts getting to much more conservative consensuses, that that's that he's that the movement's going to be incapable of properly rewarding him for it because the influencer class is going to say, but I thought, you know, these kind of spending bills are bad or, you know, X, Y, and Z. How, how are you thinking about setting up incentives properly for this new way of doing things? Yeah, I, I think that basically, because you have two, you have, uh, it's double-edged sword, right? You have, um, at, the, at, this, at some point, you want to basically raise the bar where it's really difficult for him or move the Overton window, however you want to um, describe it, to where the result is going to be better than it would have otherwise been. Um, but ultimately, we, the idea that basically there's going to be some signing ceremony with Chip Roy and Andy Biggs and everybody standing behind Joe Biden clapping, <laughs> it's, just, it's not going to happen, right? Yeah. So like basically, um, we need to recognize that at the end of the day, um, it's, it's, it's the level of disappointment in the product that we, we should be judging, not whether we're disappointed at all. We're not going to get everything we want. But, um, you know, a good example of this uh, would be um, in 2011 when um, the, we, we, had, we had created this plan called the Cut Cap and Balance Plan. And it was, it was a, 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 like almost absurdly uh, a, a big ask that we had ha had out there. We, we wanted to pass a balanced budget amendment and all these wonderful things. At the end of the day, they passed a bill, the Budget Control Act, which was probably the biggest and most consequential limitation on spending that we had seen in, in, in you know, in a decade. Um, and we were all kind of pissed off about it, right? It was like a disappointment. But from where it was before we started the cut, cap, and balance uh, 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 strategy, John Boehner wanted to increase taxes, wanted to increase spending. You know, McConnell just wanted to raise the debt limit with no attachment to it we ended up getting something that was less bad than we would have otherwise gotten. And it actually moved the ball a little bit down the road, but not as far as we wanted. Mm -hmm. I think ultimately that's um, that's what's probably gonna happen here. Um, but I think ultimately I am the, the, the more likely thing, having being a cynic, is that it's gonna be a total sellout and you're gonna have a fake uh, immigration package attached to a giant uh, Ukraine uh, 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 bill and a bunch of Christmas trees for for lobbyists on K Street, and everybody's going to be mad about it. I think that's what we assume is going to happen. If that doesn't happen, that will be an extraordinary uh, uh, breath of fresh air. Um, and so I really, um, you know, I think we 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 have no choice but to give Mike Johnson um, the ability to 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 do his best, uh, but. You know, being being cynics, cynics about this this town, it's really hard to believe uh, that that basically um, we're, that we're going to get everything we want. Mm -hmm. But I, I think the one thing we have right now is that even somebody like Mike Johnson, who everybody trusts, we're we're holding him accountable. The, the Freedom Caucus and and all these guys, you see it. People are watching very closely, and people are not going to be are not going to be tricked this time with the you know, with the normal uh, uh, smoke and mirrors game. So it's it's a it's a high wire act. And, and you know, I, I this is what you run for. Right. Yeah. Uh, tell me how you feel about uh, scorecards. You know, th this was another one of those kind of tools of accountability that uh, it's existed for, for some time. In fact, the organization I used to run in Texas did the first one in the states ever in 1968 um, or 1978. Um, but, you know, if you were to play out that virtuous branch that you laid out where conservatives are able to enter the process significantly move uh big legislation to the right presumably they have to end up voting for that legislation yeah. um, otherwise they lose the ability to speak into that process um you know in, in that transitionary phase as as conservatives are taking the driver's seat does the utility of scorecard politics uh become dangerous or or, or an, an enemy of the progress you want to make how are you thinking about that so um on on scorecards generally and then we'll talk about the specific situation um i see that there's like is really kind of two different types of scorecards there are scorecards that are designed to uh 
inform and educate voters about um, about and reveal uh, who is the best and worst congressman or senator or state legislator or whatever. Um, oftentimes, scorecards like that are done after the fact. At the end of the year, you look at all the votes and say, I think, you know, looking at it, these are the most important ones. Um, uh, uh, you know, uh, the the ACU scorecard was one that was done uh, at the end of the year, right? They don't they don't really in, always announce their scorecards. Then you have scorecards um, that um, are designed to influence the process, right? Le- more so, the NRA is the classic example of mm-hmm. that. Like the NRA doesn't score many votes, but when they do, the earth shakes, right? <laughs> um, but a lot of scorecards today are like a hybrid. Right. The Herod Jackson scorecard, the Club for Growth scorecard, different different ones like that, where you basically are trying to influence the vote, but you're also trying to reveal and, and, and inform and educate your your members. And that can get tricky because basically um, you, when you when you announce a vote ahead of time. Is that vote actually going to be the most revealing one or not? Right. And so that becomes uh, becomes something that it's just a, it's just a game you play. Votes aren't always, as you know, um, the most important indicator. Um, you know, a lot of times there, there are members who may have uh, really solid scorecards, you know, really solid voting records, but behind the scenes, they're, they're constantly caving and doing nothing to advance the cause. And then you may have a member who maybe is, is not, you know, in line with a, with a group on everything, but basically they're, they're one of your biggest fighters. So, um, but but it is what it is. I think it's it's important that people be uh, able to that the voter be able to kind of see, um, and and scorecards are really kind of a, a, a just a, a cliff's notes to that, and and it kind of opening conversation. But then you want to sort of look under the hood and figure out what's behind it. Yeah, um, one of the things that um, me and a lot of my friends have been extraordinarily appreciative of when it comes to CPI is how open you guys have been to this rising ideological faction on the right. Um, and a conversation that I feel like I have with you at least once every six months, and it's usually me prompting it, is like, what, what advice do you have for this ideological insurgency, some call it the new right, national conservatives, whatever, as they try to actually insinuate themselves into real politics, not just writing essays at each other. How do you think about what the pitfalls are, um, uh, where opportunities are, and uh, where where we can make the most impact? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think basically, um, f- the I think the most important way to think about it is that a nascent movement will naturally be initially f- focused on uh, being a provocateur, right? Like, so when you look at like a uh, the early days of the pro-life movement, there was always like, you know, the big, big, like, you know, protests with pictures of dead babies and all this stuff. You're just trying to get attention. And, and you know, in the animal rights movement, they were spray painting people's coats and, and doing all this, stuff, you know, disgusting stuff. And the gay rights uh, parades with, with you know, they're still doing this stuff. But, <laughs> but basically, you get to a point, though, as your movement matures to where you know, and the and the pro life movement, you're really now kind of actually writing policy, and the and, and the sort of uh, animal protection groups now become the the humane society, and they're actually like like you know a legislative juggernaut. They don't have to be, you know, constantly looking for attention. I so I feel like basically the early days is kind of about um, it's about getting the ideas out there. It's like it's like when you have the um, at an auto show, you have your concept cars and then you have the the, the street cars, right? The ones that are actually going to be sold. Um, the concept cars, like, hey, look at these are the imaginative things we can do, right? And that's kind of where I think, you know, a couple of years ago, where the, you know, so-called new right would have been, right? Where you're basically throwing out these ideas, trying to challenge orthodoxies and 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 get people excited about the possibilities. But then at some point, you're you basically are like, okay. We we've we've essentially elected a president. We we have uh, uh, you know um, a pretty strong uh, penetration on a lot of the issues we care about um, on on the Hill. Uh, let's actually start putting some points on the board. I think one of the most important um, things for uh, as somebody who really identifies and you know have been working for senators who are basically new right before the new right um you signed the not con statement of principles yeah <laughs> and and you know bob smith was basically new right jesse uh, jeff sessions was uh, was was essentially new right they didn't call it that back then but you know against you know nafta gat wto china so i think that basically um 
the first goal is to get penetration and 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 support within the conservative movement, right? And so we're not looking to create a bipartisan consensus. That doesn't really that's not creating a movement. If you just pass a bill, a bipartisan bill, that's not a movement. What what you need to do is you need to basically infuse and and bring along the infrastructure of uh, of of the conservative movement, create new infrastructure and and then basically use that to sort of uh, uh, you know, drive these issues. The, but the the other thing is, um, what what actually are the boundaries here of of what we're actually talking about that makes this conservative? And you talk about the horseshoe, you know, that we we always talk about the horseshoe uh, uh, shaped uh, ideological spectrum, where the sort of the far right and the and the far left are kind of at the bottom of the horseshoe. But there's sort of a dotted line that goes to the top of the horseshoe. Where it's hard to say, okay, are you really far right because you support these ideas, or are you a rhino, right? Like it's basically the you're you're at the same place in the ideological spectrum, and so that's where I think we, who, when whenever you're you know kind of heterodox on on issues, you need to understand why you're doing it. Um, and so, for example, on on trade, I believe that. Um, the sort of uh, the the America first approach to trade that Donald Trump took and that has really kind of been infused in the new right and in a lot of ways infused into the Republican Party is just a, a reversion back to where the party was prior to, you know, essentially the Chamber of Commerce coming in and, and, and essentially driving in a particular direction. It's not where the town is, but I think it's where the grassroots are. And I think the the exciting part about it is in 2012, two of the most interesting uh, uh, political ads I, in, in, in recent memory. One was in 2012. It was called Stage. Um, I, listeners should take a look at it. It was a pretty powerful ad, and it was run by uh, essentially the Obama super PAC against, um, against Mitt Romney. And this worker comes on the screen, and he's talking about how he, he came to work uh, one morning at, at this plant in Ohio or something like that, and uh, they asked him to, uh, uh, they said, okay, you're not going to go to your regular job. We're going to build a stage out in front of this, uh, you know, on, on the, the lawn. And so they all, all the, the employees were out there working on the stage for like three or four days. And then on that Friday, um, they were asked to come out to an assembly. And then somebody got up on the stage, somebody presumably from Bain Capital got up on stage and said, uh, we're closing the plant. You're all fired. Bye-bye. And so he basically, he was basically saying that, you know, when he was building this stage, he felt like he was essentially building his own coffin. Um, that was what the and the reason it was so powerful is because that's what the the perception of the two parties were. The Democrats are the party of the working man and the Republicans are the party of these elites, the Bain Capitals, the, the corporate um, uh, infrastructure. Fast forward to, I think, one of my favorite ads of the Trump campaign it was a speech that Michael Moore, the, the left-wing filmmaker, was giving about Trump and basically how, how powerful it was that Trump had basically threatened a 35% tariff if the auto companies had moved their plant to uh, Mexico. And he gives this whole speech um, and, and you know, talks about how Trump was, uh, uh, was going to win you know, Michigan and Ohio and, and Wisconsin and all that stuff because of, of this, this position. After at the end of his speech, he says, and, and this is so dangerous because Trump's so bad, the Trump campaign cut off the back of the speech and basically only put the, the, the good stuff, put it to music. And it was an amazing ad. <laughs> um, but basically, though, in 2012, we lost non-college educated voters by a very significant margin. In 2016, we won by like eight points. Highest, uh, you know non-college educated whites, highest results since I think 1980. Um, that's the new coalition. That's what the Republican Party is. And I think it's really been hard for the DC establishment and, and the political Republican infrastructure in DC to wrap their heads around that, that we are now the party of the working, uh, the working class, the, the people who actually, you know, shower after work rather than before work. Right. And so, um, what does that look like? And I think the new right um, is a big part of of trying to infuse some of those ideas. And how do we help these people? 
that all makes a lot of sense. I want to take some time specifically, Ed, talk about what is CPI up to? Who should be coming to you guys? Obviously, people should be giving lots of money to you guys. But uh, beyond that, what, what exactly is going on here? Because um, I've, I've watched you guys pitch it to people, and it takes a while for people to wrap their heads around yeah. it. So I wanted to give you the chance to explain everything you guys have cooking here. Sure. So we uh, CPI uh, starts from a perspective of um, our goal is to change the culture in D.C., to change the culture from compromise, sell out, you know, and then and then make a bunch of money and basically just just go along with with the machine. Um, we want to create a culture where um, people are encouraged to be fighters, to stay true to their principles, to do what they said they would do on their campaign and for for organizations in the conservative movement to work together uh, well. And and essentially our programs are are designed to support that we do. Um, uh, we do training, uh, and many of that, a lot of that is, is, um, in partnership with, with allies such as American moment. Um, we do, uh, uh, job placement. We we're going to be, uh, obviously involved in the, in the transition, but we're, um, also doing a lot on that Capitol Hill. Um, we do, uh, we do, um, coalition work. We're a big part of what we do. Um, and because we're, we're fairly small, um, we're not really a threat to any other groups. And so it gives us the ability to basically um, uh, be helpful to uh, organizations and and putting coalitions together on particular legislative, uh, uh, you know, and 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 policy battles. Um, and then uh, finally, we do um, we have we do movement support. We have a we have we've basically uh, started a a law firm and an accounting firm and other other things that basically can be used to um, to support uh, organizations, but. Finally, the, I think probably the, the, the thing that we've um, uh, uh, that's been a little bit of a, of a, of a new thing that that really came out of the 20 after the 2020 election is uh, incubation of, of new organization and trying to provide uh, wind under the sails of people with creative new ideas. And, um, you know, there's a lot of new organizations that are we're, we're in a we're in a really uh, cool moment in the conservative movement today kind of similar to what we talked about at the beginning with 19 in, in the 1970s, where you had a lot of these new organizations popping up. There's a lot of real imagination and creativity going on in the conservative movement and people coming up with different ideas and ways to sort of uh, to, to help advance our cause. And CPI, uh, one of the things that we really want to be a part of is helping to um, helping them be successful. And so that's a big, big part of our, our strategy. It's interesting because it's one of those things you say sounds very nice. What uh, was utterly revolutionary when it comes to the way most organizations operate. I mean, I I was American Moment was one of the beneficiaries of that of that generosity. Um, wh- why is it that no other conservative organization had ever been interested in doing that kind of thing? Well, the the um, I think the incentives when you're creating an organization naturally are going to be uh, insular right you want to make sure that you're you're paying the bills that you're you're successful in growing your organization um and and basically uh, uh you know the it's like a corporation right the goal of a corporation is to be uh is, is to is to grow right and to and to be successful and and if there's a cool idea that needs to be happening maybe your corporation should be doing it. And that's the way a lot of conservative uh, uh, groups would operate. And that's, under, that's, that's natural. Um, one of the things that the, um, that, and during the tea party era, there was a book that, that was uh, a, a lot of people were reading called the starfish and the spider. And basically the concept of the book was uh, the, 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 the analogy was that this, the spider, if you cut the spider's head off, it dies. Right. Whereas the starfish, if you cut the starfish leg off, it grows a new one. And it basically talks about different different types of organizations that um, that are successful. And I think it was the uh, uh, the um, the the Aztecs was one that they were, they were looking at, where basically you you had uh, it, you kill the leader and then and then basically everything uh, collapses. But then there's these uh, organizations that are more diffuse, and this was the Tea Party. Right. But basically, um, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous was was an organization that that basically it just kind of exists and there's all this stuff happening, but it's not really um, centrally managed. And that was um, 
I kind of feel like there's an advantage to having lots of creativity, entrepreneurship, um, autonomy, and everything not being centrally managed. That really, it's the it's the the opposite of the way the left operates, right? The left is very um, uh, very hierarchical. Um, you know, all the Soros funded, you know, uh, uh, machineries and, and nonprofits that basically bankroll the whole machine. And that's that there's advantages to that. But I think there's also advantages to having, um, you know, people having agency over their organization and, and being able to use their creative, uh, uh, you know, uh, minds to to move things in a particular direction. Also being, you know, listen, you, you, you know, you know this, you start an organization, you're it's it's scary. It's exciting. It's uh, it, it's fun. Um, but at the end of the day, you you sink or swim based on on your own decisions. And that's I think that's the free market. That's what we 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 need that kind of uh, energy in our movement. And that's kind of been central to our strategy. Yeah. You, you founder archetypes always do more and better. And you guys aligned your own incentives in a way that you could bring a lot more of those into the fold. And yeah. we're very grateful. Uh, Ed, where can people uh, keep up with you? You, you, you uh, unfortunately, don't post a lot on social media. I think you should do more of that. But yeah. where, where can people keep up with everything that you and CPI are doing? Yeah, I, I would okay. just say if anybody wants to hear about our organization, CPI.org is our uh, is our website. Um, you can we got some videos on there. You can you can hear about things we're working on. But um, Appreciate American Moment, everything uh, you guys do. Uh, you do amazing work. We love the partnership with American Moment and uh, appreciate you having me on the podcast. It was my pleasure. Thanks for coming on. All right. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that. I certainly did. Be sure to go to cpi.org. Uh, give them some money. Um, give us money, americanmoment.org. Uh, rate and review this podcast. Uh, uh, subscribe on YouTube. See our beautiful faces. I wore a nice suit for the show today. Um, uh, we always appreciate people listening. Um, be sure to fill out the form on our website, americanmoment.org slash join if you want to meet with us and talk about how we're going to get you involved. 2024 is upon us and there's a lot to do and uh, American Moment is working very hard to make sure that we do all of it to make sure that uh, we have the people we need in order to govern the country and govern it well. Thank you guys as always for listening and we'll see you next week. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more.